Welcome to I See What You Mean, a podcast about how people get on the same page or don't, or perhaps shouldn't. Today my guest is Dan Morford. Dan's a friend, colleague, fellow foodie, blues and rum fan, and a father worried as I am about our democracy and country. Dan, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Lou. Uh, it's glad to be here. I guess we want to talk about the political landscape of today, huh? Yeah, you and I talk about that all the time, and yes, I think I think it'd make a great podcast episode. To start, why don't you give listeners a short bio about yourself? Sure. So, you know, as, as most people going into college, I went down on the path of uh, marine biology and then found out that that wasn't what I wanted to do, and wound up in the Navy, flew uh, electronic countermeasures missions for a number of years, uh, ironically in the theater of question right now that we all focus on. Then uh, after leaving that, worked for ATD Global for quite a number of years, building a networking around the world. You know, finished up my career as a federal consultant, actually working with you, Lou, and, mm-hmm. uh, and a range of others across the federal landscape. And uh, during that entire time, over a couple decades now, you and I yeah. have talked consistently about where this country was heading, you know, what it needed in order to be its best self. And, uh, you know, I guess that's what we're going to talk about a little bit today. It is. And, you know, and then the pandemic heightened some of that dialogue, as we both know. And we, we've we talked about it as we are now directly. We've talked about it through Facebook and, and posts. And we've talked about the extreme voices in politics and how they're overwhelming or drowning out those who aren't extreme. So one of the things that I know you've been thinking about is where's the center? What's going on in the center? We don't think that we both agree the country's not as extreme as the voices make it seem. Those extremes are out there, but there's people in the middle, maybe more like us, who don't hold those extreme views. And we both wondered, you know, we're part of that. Where, what's, what's going on with that, with that center? And, and where's the, where's the, the voice of the message coming from the center? So why don't you just pick up on that and share your thoughts on it? Sure, sure. Well, what's of interest to me in folks on this is, you know, hypocrisy is in vogue right now. And I think it has been for, for a long time, but it's come to the forefront today. Rather than having constructive dialogue, we are busy hurling insults at one another. Your position's wrong. And if you don't accept mine, I'm not going to listen to you anymore. Well, that's a recipe for disaster, especially in the 21st century, where things happen very quickly and the implications are much broader and deeper than they perhaps were 100, 200 years ago. You know, the fact is, is that the, the Republicans say the Democrats spend too much money, for instance. The Democrats can say, no, the Republicans are just like us. They get it off. They spend too much money. The reality is both are, are true. You know, if you We're look at the situation, too much money, <laughs> period. We are. You know, and again, the priorities differ. You know, if you get a Republican administration in, in right now, the focus becomes the, the travesty of abortion. You know, if you get the Democratic side in, then the, the travesty becomes homelessness, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And rather than talking constructively as intelligent humans about how we can address these problems, both factually and economically, which is important, we, we tend to just hurl insults at each other. And today, I, I looked yesterday again. And we had crossed the $30.3 trillion mark for national debt. Now, most people don't know that that national debt is just the discretionary debt. You know, there's a whole lot more non-discretionary debt like Social Security and stuff that are hanging out there that don't even get incorporated into that money. But $30.3 trillion, you say that to people and they either don't connect with you or their eyes glaze over because you can't wrap your mind yeah, around no, some a, of this. It's mind-boggling. It's, it's 14 digits long. You know, yeah. so there's a lot there. But but what's more important to that, and I wish the American public would pay more attention to this in their busy lives, but what's more important than that number is the debt 
to in relationship to our gross domestic product, how much we produce as a nation. In 1980, the ratio of our national debt to our GDP or gross domestic product was 34.5%. Today, it is 125.6%. That means that we're spending over 25 cents over and above every dollar, you know, that just goes right to that debt line. And then administrations on both sides want to talk about deficit. They don't ever want to talk about debt. They want to talk about, I'm going to reduce the deficit. And people don't stop to realize that what they're basically saying in layman's terms is, I'm going into debt less fast than I was yesterday, or more fast, you know, faster or less fast. The, the, the fundamentals are saying we are still digging the hole. We're not even, we're not even stopping the dig, much less filling in the hole. We keep digging it deeper on both sides of the equation. The article I read yesterday talked about the fact that the rules of the game have, have become things that support the continuation of what you just decried, which is if our side wins, that's that's what matters, is that we just want to win. We want more seats so we can we and and we'll we'll, we'll a pass or attempt to pass the legislation we think is that we have a mandate for. And you know, the winner take all system is a little bit weird because if you win fifty one percent and you want to claim you have a mandate, you got to be a little careful with that. Right. There might have been forty nine percent of the people who thought some things could go a different way. And as you're saying, and as what we're both saying is. If you have the right kind of dialogue about it, you can find in the middle where most people think is the reasonable path. But if you say at 51% you have a mandate and you go go in and do things that are extreme or your hot button issues, that's what the game's become. It's become, it's self-fulfilling in that sense that it's like a political masturbation, Dan. Like, that makes me feel good and I'm mm-hmm. just going to do it. I'm going to sure. keep doing it. And then you won, you won last time. Well, now you're going to do it. Well, what are we getting out of that as a country? What's the policy decisions? What's the course we're on? What's, we've got big problems. What, nothing's changing while, while the parties do that. You know, I think you have to start with an educated public. And even that term education can spawn hours of debate right now. Right. But the fact is Lou, if you or I were to line up 10 people on the street right now and ask them who their congressional representatives were, maybe one or two might tell you. And the other eight would say, I'm not real sure, you know, that they haven't paid enough attention. And then of the, say, two, they could name them. You ask them, well, what do they stand for? And all you're going to get is a deer in the headlights. Look, because people, granted, people's lives are busy. Yeah. But I think the, the establishment machine that, you know, fertilizes that air of yeah. busyness such that the individual does not have time in their lives to think about things that matter to them. You know, the, the, the hypocrisy then just pervades from that because uh, people seize on little sound bites in the in the media, social or, or online or, or mm-hmm. broadcast, and then that becomes their mantra for the day. And rather than having an intelligent discussion about a subject, we devolve into hurling insults at one another based on a very small fraction of the information that that actually surrounds the subject at hand. And to your point about a 51 or even a 55% win, people say, oh, I won by five points. That's great. Yes, but only 30% of the eligible voters actually cast their vote. Yeah, right. There's That's another problem, That's right? That's true, too. You yeah. know? Yeah. So what, what happens if a difference 30% woke up that morning and said, I think I'm going to vote? Then the whole, the whole <laughs> spectrum could change, right? So we have to, as a society, start to take ownership at an individual level of our future. And that's the last thing that the establishment government 
congressional representatives want to happen. I agree. There, there's a reason agree. that if you look at the congressional landscape, the vast majority of them are multi-term, some of them multi-decade politicians. And you know, our forefathers never meant for politics at a congressional level to be a career. Yeah, It was something you were supposed to put aside your professional career for a limited amount of time and yeah, go in and as a service to the nation, right? But we, and I mean we, the individual uh, American, need to take ownership of that because we've allowed this to happen over the recent two, three, four decades. We have turned a blind eye to what Congress was doing, and they have, like humans will do, granted themselves raises, granted themselves health care that we don't, as American citizens, have. It's, it's quite an interesting contradiction to me that the Congress that is responsible for quality, affordable health care in America doesn't even use the same quality affordable health care <laughs> that they all. grant to the citizens. They all. have created their own parallel platform that covers them and their families, not only while they're in office, but for the rest of their lives, while we sit out here and grouse back and forth about the cost of health insurance. That is a perfect case example of how Americans need to pay more attention to the details in their lives. That's a good you know? point. I think there's some limitation on that, but the points that doesn't change your point. It's a, a very self-serving, and I, we, we talked about that over the course of the pandemic as people were ranting and raving about the vaccine, and I made a comment on, on a Facebook post. I said, look, the only people that are benefiting by, you know, it became a very vitriolic dialogue at that time. Mm-hmm. Said, the only people that are benefited, benefiting by this are the ones who want to get elected on it, yeah. and the ones, who, the ones who make money at it in some other way. So if you are a podcaster, if you're a broadcaster, if you're a commentator and you've got your stick and you make money, you get eyeballs on your posts, on your on your blogs, or you get people viewing you on TV or listening to you on radio, or if you are in an industry where you make, can make a ton of money based on uh, the divisiveness, the, the divisiveness works for you. There's only mm-hmm. so, there's certain parties that are, that are doing very well with things being that divisive and it's not it's not the country it's not the people in the middle who are who are maybe i don't even know if it's a political middle but who aren't extreme who are saying can we get back to talking about our infrastructure is it time to update our our clean water and our clean air laws because it's been decades since they were written it's those parties that benefit by it that keep perpetuating it let's talk a little bit about how to reclaim the dialogue let's talk a bit about your experience talking to people. You mentioned if you actually talk to people and don't open up with, you know, firing my opinions at somebody, that's the opening salvo, right? right? I'm going to shoot right. my opinions at you. If we actually talk to people, what, what do you hear in the dialogue when you're talking to We both live in Florida. Um, I'm in Tampa. You're in a, a, a less, say, urban area. Right, right. What do you hear? Well, to begin with, you know, I think we, we when we become focused in this area, it, it becomes obvious that it, in the current environment, there's not a crisis out there that cannot be monetized, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and or used as an emotional stir stick among the population, right? Take the pandemic. Oh, Fauci's an ass. No, no, Fauci's the science. No, Fauci's that. Blah, blah, blah. And, and what you want to do, you devolve into this discussion, if you will, a very dated discussion about an individual that at the end of the day has nothing to do with the original subject at hand. Take what we're dealing with right now in Ukraine. You know, well, Putin's a jerk. You know, well, no, the, the West is trying to be a capital, blah, blah, blah. 
instead of talking about the human suffering and the, the, the travesty that is going on, the human cost uh, of what's happening there, we are devolving into who's going to provide what weapons to whom, when, and then what's that going to result in? Wow. You know, I mean, the end result is not going to be good either way. You know, so what do I hear? Look, in Florida, take Florida just yesterday, as I understand it, there's a new law that the the legislature came out with that the, the left side has dubbed the don't say gay law. Right. If you dig into it, though, what it really says is don't talk about things like transgender sexuality, as an example, to children that are four, five, six, eight years old, you know, and. When you look at it from that perspective, you know, our children today have an ever shorter childhood because of the things that are going all around them. Those few years of innocence should be preserved. You know, they should be focusing on teddy bears and who's kicking the can out of the street and then riding bikes, you know, and then things like that. They, you know, there will come a time, the vast majority of all of our lives, where we have to focus on the things we're talking about today. But when you're seven or eight years old, you shouldn't be, not only should you not be faced with that, you don't have the mental maturity to process it and make it make sense in your world. So, you know, neither side is right and neither side is wrong there when they start talking about that one piece of legislation. Should we embrace, you know, humanity regardless of sexual orientation, yada, yada, yada? Absolutely. Can we pick a fight amongst ourselves about any one of the issues related to that humanity? Yeah, absolutely. Sure. So the focus now becomes the fight rather than the humanity, right? Why, true, why are we true. doing this? You know, true. Let's talk about that for a minute. Try to try to illustrate the point you're making. I saw that article yesterday and want to look up the law to actually read the language. Two things concern me. One, I think if you just think about the objective of it, okay, it's not unreasonable. Let's not have any. Let's not have the subject matter in the curriculum from kindergarten right. to third grade. But, you know, Anne's a school teacher, and she says, well, it's not in the curriculum. There's no curriculum in which that's a part. I said, well, how would it come up in a classroom? She said, at those ages, probably wouldn't. She said, a teacher's not going to bring it up because they don't want to open that can of worms in a classroom. Right. They're not using it as part of a, any curriculum at those ages, and they're not going to read a book at, you know, at reading time that gets into that issue because... Now, any individual could, but she said generally teachers aren't going to because it opens all kinds of conversations that you don't even want to have. Right. So a student could bring it up, she said. Um, she said there's a student where she teaches who's got, um, I think she said he had like black fingernail, painted his fingernails pink or black and blink sparkles. So mm -hmm. kids are saying, what is that about? So I said, well, what's the conversation that teachers try to have? And she says, only, only way to play it is tolerance. Right? right. The only way to do it if you're a teacher is to not, no matter what your personal view is, you shouldn't espouse a political or a social po policy sort of position on it. You, it's just, you got to just teach tolerance. Now, maybe parents think there should be a harsher judgment made about that student. That's their opinion. But as a teacher in a classroom, all you can say is, you know, we respect each other. We treat each other well. Let's move on with the lesson, right? That's what you're right. going to try to do. What concerned me about the language that was quoted in articles, I want to read it because you always find something that you read it, the original, that wasn't covered right. in the press coverage. Right. Was how vague some of the language was. And they're saying parents ought to be able to sue. So what I saw in it more, if what you want to grant the, the legislature, especially the Republicans, because it was their bill, 
here's a, a value of we don't think this should be in the classroom at that at those three grades, four grades. Okay, I can agree with that. But if you look at the means to the end, how they constructed the language, the legislation, you know, I, there could be something else going on here. This mm-hmm. is kind of poking. This is the political. This is this is saying to people, go ahead and sue. Well, th- that's not a public policy objective that I think is valuable for education. So pick it up. What are your thoughts on how how something like that helps or distorts the conversation we need to be having about an issue? Well, well the first thing that comes to mind, just in a bigger picture format, is the litigious culture that we have developed here in the United States. It doesn't matter who you are, what you stand for, there's somebody to sue about it, you know? And as a result, <laughs> everything goes up. You know, it's the cost of food, the cost of healthcare, the cost of insurance, everything goes up, not because of real issues. I think to your point, you know, this is a piece of legislation, just use it as an example, not champion or otherwise, it's just an example where a set of individuals crafted a law that on one hand could be very well-meaning, on the other hand could have underlying implications, right. 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 right? You know, but they were allowed to craft that law almost in a vacuum because the public that they serve knows, again, just enough to, about it to be dangerous. So you have the left-leaning side of, of, of America saying, oh, we're going to call this uh, don't say gay. Well, that's inflammatory, okay, because that's right. not really true. On the other hand, you know, the right side will say, well, we're just protecting children of their innocence. Well, okay, but it, it goes beyond that or could go beyond that. And, and then the, the, the simplest view would be, okay, if, if we're having a dialogue about this, A, we could probably craft a much better piece of legislation, and B, does it really matter to begin with if we're doing the right things for the right reasons, you know? And I really think we've got to get back to ownership as individual citizens of our collective future, because right now we are voting on individuals, as we said before, that we put into office and then turn a blind eye to for two or four years or perhaps more because we've got better things to do. And but then when a piece of legislation gets enacted, then we, then we crosses, pay attention to it. Yeah. 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 We it crosses our personal boundary and we're like, oh, my God, how did that happen? Well, how it happened was you were asleep at a wheel at the wheel, Mr. Citizen, you know. Another thing I read from a Republican was, fair point, he was saying, parents, take. I encourage you to take this up at home. So let's not mm-hmm. put it in the schools. Take, right. take this up at home. But I think that makes that makes me think of the point you just made, which is some families do, a lot of families don't. Right. A lot of families right. don't. And you read the legislation, or you heard about the proposed legislation, I don't think anything's passed, that wanted to criminalize, that, no, that wanted teachers to report to parents if a student approached them and said, there's homes all over this district where students of any age can't talk to their parents about these things. And sometimes the only trusted person they know is perhaps a teacher. And there's always that one teacher, that one coach, you think... I could tell something to. I could confide right. in. Sure. And and so she's saying, you want to make it a law that they've got to report that? Right. So I still respect the objective. I think this is a means end. I think this comes down to, to a means ends challenge, Dan. Right. I respect the end. I respect the objective of, let's put the right conversations in the right places for people who ought to be having them. The means to the end 
as I've seen it in the Florida law, is probably more problematic than helpful. Maybe in the end, it's with lawsuits and things, it's going to be more of a problem than a help. Sure. But I won't condemn the objective. Right. But 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 but, but you and I having a conversation about it that who else had? Did they have this conversation in the legislature? I kind sure. of doubt it. Nope. Yeah, had, you, you can know, be sure not. Recently, I interviewed Susan Valdez, my Florida State rep. Uh-huh. Like a month or two ago, we had the episode, and she said, uh, she's a Democrat, pretty centrist in her approach, though, which I liked. More, more like, look, it's just kind of like what you and I did in business, problem-solving approach. Right. We didn't have to have a big philosophy or theory about it. We were, we were trying to solve problems every day. And she's got that problem-solving approach. And she said to me, without naming any names, she said, I asked a Republican colleague, why are you doing that? And that wasn't in reference to anything that I knew, and this is months right. ago. He said, because we can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we're allowed to. Mm-hmm. And part of it is because they've got the numbers. Part of it is because they, you know, we all, they all, they both sides have rigged the rules to work for them when they need the rules to work for them, right? Right. And then part of it's because of what you've already said, which is watchdog groups are fine, but where's the citizens watching this going? No, 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 no. That's not, I don't, I can't agree to that. That's not right. Back off right. of that. Re- rethink right. that. Keep talking about that. Don't, you're not stopping here. Keep, keep thinking about that and talking about it and make that better. Mm hmm. Back when I first began studying the management side over the engineering side, as I moved through my own profession, you know, I, I, I you know, I talked about this. I think I, I had a seminar from a, a gentleman named Peter Singe, who uh, headed the uh, the Sloan School of Management at, at MIT. And you know what he said was, you know, we're basically as as individual humans only unprejudiced for the first second of life. <laughs> but as soon as that doctor smacks you on the butt, you become developing prejudices. Ow, that hurt. I don't want to do that again. And it goes on from there. And so we evolve into adulthood, developing our own, you know, focal points, uh, you know, emotional you know, perspectives, et cetera, et cetera. But those things are all formed or should be formed in large part by a rich dialogue of exploring perspectives. You know, getting back to your teacher. I'm sure the first thing he says is like, I have time to do that with this administrative <laughs> overload that I have today. Well, where did that administrative overload came, come from? In large part, it came from, well, we've got to protect our hindquarters so that it's not possible that this district or I get sued for what I say or do or don't do. You know, Lou, I remember back in high school, you know, elementary school, high school, teachers that if they had a problem student would actually take the time out of their lives to go visit the parents at their home and say, hey, this is what I'm seeing. You, know, you always have the parent-teacher conferences, but, you know, they would take time out of their lives to go and have a discussion about an issue and try to nip it in the bud. Not only do they not have time to do that anymore, they couldn't do it. I'm sure there's an administrative rule that says they can't do it because, A, they might open a can of worms for the district, and, B, they might walk into a situation where they get shot or kidnapped or God knows what else. And that's a sad statement about a much bigger picture, the education of our societal fabric, you know? Yeah, those stories were sort of legendary, that teacher, that coach who sure. working with the family to see if they could help with something. And, yeah, I can't imagine... I can imagine someone doing that today. It's just, it's a different environment, much riskier. Right. right. And it all boils down to risk, you know, financial, emotional, physical risk involved in expressing oneself. Be you a teacher or just Joe, the average American citizen. You have to be very careful about what you say to not 
find yourself on the rails, you know, in, in society. And that's, that's an unfortunate factor that keeps us from dialogue. And that was the other thing Singe said is there's a fundamental difference between dialogue and discussion. When people discuss an issue, they come at it from this is my perspective and this is why it's right. And you need to accept it. In a dialogue, a true dialogue, you come to the table, you throw all of your perspectives on the table, and then you dissect them together and come out with a core set of perspectives that are well-rounded because of the different inputs that came to the table. Mm-hmm. We don't do that anymore. We just hurl insults at one another, you know? Do you remember Do you remember the story? <laughs> do you know the name Daryl Davis? He's a musician. He's a, he's a, like, a, I'm looking at his website, Blues a Boogie Woogie, Blues Rock and Roll. He's probably our age. He's you know been around a long time, but he's the guy you've probably heard the stories. He's a black man who befriended KKK members decades ago. He was playing and he's on a break in between sets, and he strikes up a conversation with a with a white guy there, who turns out to be a KKK member at the time. Uh, yeah, but what the way that Daryl handled the conversation. Didn't inflame anything. Now, he's operating at a handicap from the start. Right. But didn't inflame anything. And the way he interact with, at, interacted with the guy made the guy think, I like this guy. I like this guy. And they struck up a friendship. And when he would go back to that town, they would meet. Well, and then over time, he met more and more guys. And the f- famous part of the story is he's got, I don't know, a dozen or two KKK outfits in his possession. The guys gave him and said, I'm done. White guys giving right. him the cloak mm-hmm. and the hood saying, you know, I'm walking away from that. In part because of the relationship they had or came to have with him over time. And he talks about in his, in his speeches how he listened. Right. How he, how he, how he interacted with them that was part of what I think we could what we we could use today when like you said not opening up with your opinion about something but in the dialogue listening not that you don't have a view and not that you shouldn't express it mm-hmm. but there's got to be this way we do it so that we're trying to achieve a greater objective than just we're, 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 we're skins and shirts teams and I'm trying to advance my team and you're trying to advance yours fuck right that. what kind of objective is that anymore Exactly. Exactly. You know, as as a age, you know, you look back at things you heard, truisms, and one of the ones that that, that my mom used to say to me all the time, you know, which she probably should have listened to herself more, was that God gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason. And basically, that's a simplistic way of saying, if the input you're receiving is not at least twice the output you're giving, <laughs> we're probably on a wrong path, right? Because, you know, when, when I was, you know, in charge of adult education at Cable and Wireless, you know, and we, we were running seminars across the nation about moving to the digital age. And one of the things that I would always open with as an icebreaker is, you know, what I know about this subject is a small fraction of what I want to know about this subject. What I want to know about this subject is an even smaller fraction of what there is to know about mm-hmm. this subject. That's a good point. And you know, what that means is uh, you keep yourself open to learning. Because if you stop for five minutes, what you were talking about five minutes ago has changed, especially in the the, the digital world that we live in today, right? So we have to constantly open ourselves up to input, to to refine our own perspectives and come together again in that dialogue-centric, 
focus for national and personal prosperity. And we're not doing that because A, our lives are very, very busy. And B, the powers that be and the control factors that come from that don't want us talking at that level. That's true. But let's talk about the psychology of that. There's something comforting or certainty feels Mm -hmm. comforting. Certainty feels good. Certainty feels safe. This is the psychology of it. And the idea of learning almost means, could could feel to some people like, well, is everything relativistic? Is there always, there's always more to learn. There's always, it can feel unmoored, unanchored, un, unstable. I love what you said. I live that way. I don't find it disturbing or troubling. Uh, I like to take in new information and I don't worry about if it challenges something I was already thinking. Right. Because I could just adjust what I'm already thinking and line it up with new information because I'm always thinking about the larger principle. If it's in business or if it's in a relationship, right? There's a larger principle that I want to aspire to, that I want to honor. And everything else is a means to the end. Right. And if I learn new things about the means or about myself, if I learn something about myself that I didn't know I sounded that way or came across that way or, okay, that's not my intent because... My goal is to have the communication be clear, be productive, be, you know, be, be respectful. So I change the means. Sure. To me, sure. The, and so just what's your, just react, go ahead and react to that. Well, to, to begin with, it, when we start to have discussions, you know, with, with, with individuals in society, family, friends, or, or just people you smell on the street, and, and you start to espouse your position about a given subject, the impetus today is for the other person to interrupt you and not let you finish your thought. Because if you finish your thoughts, you might actually make a point, you know? So rather than let you finish what you're saying, you know, interrupt you and start with your own. And, the, and at that point, dialogue stops, right? Because now you've become that polarized, you know, interaction. I, I don't know how we get past that, you know, but I think you, you know, from, from my own past, getting back to what we've talked about prejudices and, you know, and how they continue to pervade our, our, our current and, and future. You know, you know, when I was 19 years old, one of my, my best friends, you know, was shot to death in the parking lot. You know, my best friend was black. I'm a white American. You know, uh, he was shot to death by a white supremacist that, that in his own mind and his own prejudices thought that there might be a possibility that this individual could do something wrong. And, and the end result was horrific for, for both, you know, Harold's family for me as an individual, and the worst part of it for me, beyond watching my best friend die, you know, right there, was a couple of weeks later having to stand up in front of a large population of his family and friends as a white American and explain to them why we're not all bad, you know, and how color should not define us. Yeah, they, they, I mean, yeah, yeah, people always want to go back to that famous quote from Martin Luther King about the character of one's you know, mm-hmm. self rather than the mm-hmm. color of their skin, mm-hmm. right? And we talk about that like it's some epiphany. Well, let's sit down and really think about that and then try and practice it. But it never happens because we are, again, so polarized and so busy that we don't have time to learn from one another. And somehow we've got to change that because we can see the results clearly all around us right now from not being a, a dialogue-centrist, uh, forward-focused, centrist populace. You know, if you're not a, 
uh, Democrats, you're you're wrong. If you're not a Republican, well, you're wrong. Yeah, if you're a Libertarian, yeah. you're just cuckoo, right? You know, <laughs> I mean, you know. So so uh, at the end of the day, we can you know we can say, okay, that was fun, you yeah, know. Right, but what right. did we really do, right? You know. I wonder. I wonder if, just like you're at an airport, you're at the gate, you're just talking to somebody you don't even know, never met him before, maybe never see him again, and this conversation comes up, which you know could be d- d- divisive. And if you just approached it differently and asked more questions than, than offered more opinions. I've done this in different settings. You can see the conversation go in a different direction. You can see it unfold in a different way than if you're, than if you're tossing opinions at each other. I know you for 20 years, you've been preaching dialogue, whether it was about politics or a project team. Right. What's your experience? When you saw the conversation, you knew it could go in an unproductive way, and you saw by how you listened or others asked questions, it shifted. That concludes the first of two episodes Dan and I recorded. Join us next week for more on putting aside what Dan called individual control factors for honest and open dialogue, the need for dialogue about long-term solutions, not just what the left or right want today, and ways to shift our thinking and perspectives in order to open up dialogue we need for the long run.